Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Clearly, the master finds an ally in the university. The university in all of its sham progress from the discourse of the psychoanalyst, you'll recall. In fact, I think this is a terrific way, one among several, to understand how the four discourses hang together. The university serves the master, and the psychoanalyst activates the hysteric. The hysteric as the very subject whose discourse, as we're going to see, troubles the master as the holder of S1 and troubles the university as the holder of S2. Now, let's earn it. Let's continue as we've been moving forward here, one step at a time. Next up, having heard about the master, is the university. The university discourse, it looks something like this. You've seen it before. S2 addressing little a, with the production of a barred subject, and underneath the S2, in the position of truth, you have S1. S2 here is not knowledge as a process that we've been talking about, the knowledge process. This is really more like your traditional, classic understanding of knowledge as a systematic, totalizing structure. Let me be clear, this is not scientific, experimental, adventurous knowledge. The type of knowledge that we're going to see is more characteristic of the hysteric. At the level of the university, the type of knowledge we're talking about here is knowledge that is established, ensconced, authoritative, disciplinary in every sense you can think of. It holds down disciplines, produces coherent discourses on which new initiates into that discipline can be tested. Those of you working on your doctoral degree, you know about exams. Those of you that tested out instead of writing a thesis for a master's, you know about exams. The type of exams that when you pass mark your initiation into an established discipline indicating that you know your way around a certain ensconced field, discourse, discursive formation, if you will. That's the type of knowledge that we see in the position of S2. S2 as knowledge in the dominant position of the discourse of the university. This is knowledge and its bearer who has an answer for everything. If you think about this in terms of the graph of desire, this might be the bottom left-hand quadrant where you see signified according to a big, full other. This is the individual, if you've heard our previous series on the graph of desire, who has an answer for everything. 
That's the university discourse. Not knowledge as curious wonder and bewilderment, but instead knowledge as epistemology, as consciousness, as total consciousness, as, hear me now, omniscience. The examples that we have of this type of knowledge include unified theories of everything, which you've heard me riff on before. You also see this, though, in logics of sufficient reason. You can look it up. Sufficient reason being something that Lacan rips on in Seminar 16, and rightfully so. Sufficient reason from Leibniz forward is this, I, I mean, b before him too, though, is this idea that there is a cause for everything, an answer for everything. In other words, that every single entity and event can be explained, can be fit into a broader, consistent, coherent explanation of how the universe works. And anytime you hear universe again, remember the great Lacanian critique that extends into Badiou's work. The universe is not something that exists. It's an effect. It's something that is made, something that is produced, an optical illusion, if you will. Think of universe not as a noun, but instead as a verb. To universalize, to turn into one, to oneify. That's what we're talking about here. A united theory of fill in the blank. This type of knowledge is an effect, and an effect that is fundamentally illusory. Now, it's easy to move from here to thinking the university discourse right there, smack dab in the middle of higher education, in the middle of academic culture, namely in the field of the modern university, roughly from Kant forward. Kant, don't forget, is the first philosopher who also is a professor at a university. This marks a radical new turn, arguably the historical emergence of the university discourse. Now, institutionally, we can say that, but I think you could extend it much further back if you accept this understanding of knowledge as complete, as whole, as established, as ensconced, as authoritative, as disciplinary, and the like, and you take that as this dominant position, you could certainly trace the discourse of the university back beyond, deeper into the history of Western thought um, past Konigsberg. So... Yeah, it's easy to think this in terms of professors. Let's do it. Let's do it just to keep things real here. Here is the vision of the university as you may have encountered it in a college classroom. It's the omniscient professor who has an answer for every question, who shows up and speaks to, or more precisely, at, the ignorance, bewilderment, and epistemic lacks of the student. That's what this objet A would indicate here. It would indicate the lack of knowledge that the student suffers and that the university professor speaks at. Now, this is not the same as the analyst speaking at the barred subject. Notice the inversion here. Not, not at all. The barred subject is what is produced by the act of the university. 
here the university is addressing an epistemic lack marked by objea in its traditional sense as a signifier of lack. What is produced by this address, where the omniscient professor addresses the ignorant student? Well, a more ignorant student than there was before. What you get is a student body that feels inadequate, subordinate, subjugated, and all before the absolute knowledge of the professor. This is what the barred subject is doing here. The barred subject is in the position of product here because that's what it feels like to be addressed by one of these professors. And think back again to your own experience in the classroom. I guarantee you've met a professor like this. A professor who has never said the three magic words of higher education. I don't know. A professor who always seems to have an answer. Beware the performance of omniscience. Now, as you know, this knowledge-power relation that you see working its way through the university discourse extends beyond academic culture, beyond higher education. In fact, I would suggest, as I'm always want to do, series of suggestions here, is that you extend this, and rightfully so, following lots of commentary on the discourse of the university, into late capitalism. And to read the knowledge-power structure of the discourse of the university in relation to rationalizations of late capitalist logics of production and consumption. That's what you heard me edging toward in our discussion of the master. Notice how it plays out and finds expression in the discourse of the university. S2, in the position of agent here, rationalizes and always in what Lacan calls articulated knowledge. It rationalizes the exploited product of the slave, the worker, the wage slave's obedience, a devaluation and dispossession of their work, of their know-how, and its conversion into surplus value, ideally, as far as the capitalist is concerned. Here is Objea. Here is Objea being spoken to, about, rationalized, and justified by the S2. Here is the university professor doing that job of servicing the master. Here is Objea in the very traditional way of understanding it relative to these discourses as a kind of surplus. Now, again, don't forget, it could also result in a deficit. A loss could be what is working out here. It could just be the logic of loss and gain, surplus and deficit, that the university discourse is rationalizing. All of which further alienates the wage slave leaving them more divided and feeling more insufficient than ever before, alienated from their knowledge, from their know-how, alienated from the very system that then expects them to become consumers within it. Here you would see the product of a barred subject, an alienated subject, 
I think this, this reading works just as well. In fact, I almost like it a little bit better because it cleaves closer to one of the dominant understandings of that S1 here in the discourse of the university. The S1 that is in the lower left-hand quadrant, namely the position of truth. What's that S1 doing there as a signifier of mastery, as the truth of the university? Well, you get an answer to that when you start thinking of the university less in terms of student-teacher dynamics and more in terms of knowledge-power relations as they play out in late capitalist logics of production and consumption. Now, let's look at this S1. This S1 is great. In fact, I would suggest that for Lacan, at this point in Seminar 7, and remember, we're only a few chapters in here, at this point in Seminar 17, what you see is an emphasis on this S1. What is this S1 doing here? For Lacan at this point, S1 is of even more importance than S2 in understanding the discourse of the university. S1 here is the capitalist. It's the ruling class. And when you look at S1 in relation to S2, where S1 is the truth relative to the S2, where the capitalist or the wealthy property owner, or however you want to figure this person, is the truth of the knowledge producer-converter known as the professor, as the university, you can see that basic bumper sticker from classic Marxist thought playing out. The ruling ideas in any given epoch are always little more than the ideas of that epoch's ruling class. So whatever academics are bandying about in terms of concepts, in terms of ideas, in terms of arguments, in terms of themes, name your academic buzzword. All of these buzzwords, if you come at it from a classic Marxist position, are buzzwords that at some level are simply rationalizing and justifying late capitalist logics of production and consumption in which some, a few, benefit greatly and many, most, suffer. The ruling ideas, that of the professors at fancy institutions and the like, are only ever the ideas of the ruling class. Now, you could hear this as the donors the donors to the fancy university that established the multi-billion dollar endowment that gives every single professor at that university some sort of a fancy name attached. They're not just professor of English. They're XYZ, insert a name of someone who donated millions of dollars to endow that chair, professor of English. There you see very clearly the professor yeah, on their own, thinking their own thoughts, writing their own work. But you see, even in the title that this professor has, the name of a donor who gave money, of a capitalist, of a rich person who gave money that becomes part and parcel of a slush fund that is attached <laughs> to this position. And let me tell you, there's some people who are going to be watching this lecture like, bro, come on. And it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, nobody knows who you are. 
And yet, everybody on this call, when you start going around checking out professors, when you start seeing those fancy names attached to simple professorships, let me tell you, there's money there. It costs money to get your name, dear masters, inscribed on the ivory tower. That's what Lacan is hot on here. This S1 is always the hidden truth of what enables the fancy professor to talk all the fancy talk and jet set around the world from one environmental <laughs> justice conference to the next. Now notice the great contradiction there, right? You're hopping a plane, a jet, to go to the very next environmental justice conference where you're probably gonna give a paper about the dilemmas of travel and how if we wanted to save the planet, we would all just stop going places. And in other words, stop getting on these polluting jets as you jump a jet in order to give that talk. The contradictions here are rife. And you could just keep pushing the buttons. Few industries lend themselves more to button pushing than American higher education. And I'm thinking of the Americans here. Don't trip. Don't trip my European friends. I'm thinking of the Americans here primarily. Why am I messing with this? Because what you see here is a really clear indication of this basic, and I think still quite profound, Marxist triangulation of power, philosophy, and the people. Now, here's how this typically has worked. Now, in the Marxist revolutionary tradition, you've got this idea not always, but in some cases, think Lenin to Althusser, you've got this idea that there's a vanguard intelligentsia, a group of intellectual elites whose job it is to lead the people. Here's the party with all of its officialdom and all of its pamphlets and all of its knowledge that would lead the people and presumably against power. So you've got the philosopher leading the people against power. That's one way to figure this. You could also fuck with the tradition, though, from Gramsci to Ranciere and beyond. Here you have an organic intellectual, not one that went to the fancy institutions and is the educated elite that can lead the downtrodden masses against their masters. Now, that first model of the educated elite that leads the downtrodden masses against their masters The key variable there, if you follow the work of Jacques Ranciere, is this image of the masses as downtrodden. From Plato forward, you have this image of why the slave, under questioning, can reveal all this knowledge, but would never thrive in the academy, in Plato's academy which of course is the origin of this notion of the academy and academic culture, right? Plato called his school the academy. You wouldn't have a slave working out in there. You wouldn't have a worker in there. Why? Because their bodies, after their labor, after their work, after their servitude, their bodies are simply too broken for thought, too worn out for thought. This was the wager that Plato and conservative intellectuals since him have put forward, including the idea of a vanguard intelligentsia. It's the idea that the people, the workers, need 
some sort of a homunculus, some sort of a brain trust to do the work of organizing and informing and rallying them against the master. Notice how this fantasy of a body too maimed to think legitimizes the position of a radical intellectual. In other words, gives them a paycheck. This is part and parcel of Ranciere's critique of that tradition, which is why I cue him up here. But the alternative that you see from Gramsci up through Ranciere and beyond is the idea that there could be an organic intellectual that would emerge from these downtrodden masses and be able to do the work of leading them against power. In either case, what you see is the philosopher united with the people against power. It's a very traditional Marxist way of thinking social change. Let me tell you what you also see here, though. In some cases, and if you read the Marxist critique of the intelligentsia, well, this is what you also see. You also see the emergence of petty bourgeois motherfucking professors who become mouthpieces for power. Here what you see is the philosopher united with power to address and maybe suppress the people. In other words, you see the philosopher addressing the people at power's behest. That is what you see in the discourse of the university as far as Lacan is concerned. Power is S1, the philosopher is S2, and everything to the right of that is the field of the people in all of their bewilderment and alienation. And what you see is the philosopher as S2, as knowledge, as purveyor of articulated knowledge, taking the agenda of mastery, the agenda of power, which is always exploitation and accumulation, and peddling it to and against the people. So here what you see is a slightly different approach to a lot different approach to that classic Marxist triangulation. Now you see the philosopher and the power united against the people. Examples of this shit abound. The technocrat, the political advisor, the Kissinger to Nixon. We can go on and you can go back much further than modern politics and find this very role. Seneca for Nero in the early days of the Principate, we could keep going back even further. What else was Alexander looking for when he approached Diogenes sunning himself in the pool than somebody, a philosopher type, who would tell him the truth, who would do this work of serving as this uh, whisperer for the great ruler? Now, obviously, it backfired in the case, right? Because Alexander says to Diogenes, all right, bro, I hear you like to speak truth to power. Come on, my dear Parisiastes, and tell me some truth. And you know how Diogenes responded to Alexander. Step aside, you're standing in my light. Diogenes here was trying to get a suntan. And <laughs> the great inheritor of the sun, the king, the emperor, Alexander, there he was standing before Diogenes and blocking his light. Now, this ain't that class. This ain't that session. This ain't that discussion. So I'm going to pause on that. But to let you know that this 
tradition of the philosopher uniting with power against the people, it extends much further back than modern constructions of the university. But you see it everywhere. You see the professor who goes on, leaves their university to become an economic advisor to a leader. The technocrat, the political advisor, let me be clear. Behind every leader, there is a technocratic brain trust of people with a bunch of letters after their last name. Now, I think this is a pretty convincing way to understand the university discourse as the mouthpiece for power and its pusher of agendas against the people. But this is not where Lacan spends his best intellectual money around this S1. S1 for Lacan in the position of truth in the university discourse can also mean something else, something I would suggest more traditionally Lacanian, not Marxist, but Lacanian. And that's where you see this S1 as a transcendental I, where S1, yeah, is a signifier of mastery, but doesn't precisely link up with that of the master, other than providing the illusion of wholeness, of completion. Remember, the fantasy of the master is that they are not a barred subject. And Lacan, by putting S1 underneath the S2 in the discourse of the university, wants to suggest that that fantasy carries forward into the discourse of the university with its fantasy of there being a transcendental I, a cogito, if you recall Lacan's great critiques of Descartes in the 1950s. We've been over them. I won't spend too much time on them. But I will direct you to the passages in Seminar 17 that bear our attention here of this new and pretty different way of thinking about S1. It's not a way of thinking about S1 in the discourse of the university that we often hear about. So I want to focus there. It's all about this I that you see on page 62. Probably about 10, 11 lines up from the bottom. This is the I insofar as it is transcendental, the paragraph begins. A paragraph that should be indented, but for some reason is not. But equally, insofar as it is illusory. There's that other key part here. The transcendental I is an illusion. Why? Because there's always this thing known as the unconscious. We'll talk about it. This is the ultimate root operation. The one that what I am describing as an elaboration of the university discourse guarantees for itself. And this is what shows that finding it here is no accident. So the S1 in question here is a transcendental I that guarantees the university discourse right there in its position of truth. The transcendental I is what anyone who has stated knowledge in a certain way harbors as truth. The S1, the I of the master. Now, this could be the I of the master in terms of the master's authority, the master's I command you, but I don't think that's what he's up to here. Again, I think what he's up to here is an understanding of self as identical with itself. In other words, without separation, without division, 
without barred subjectivity. That image that the master holds for itself is also one that the university, in their own unique way, hangs on to in all of its illusory implications. Check it out. Lacan continues at the bottom of 62. The transcendental I is what anyone who has stated knowledge in a certain way harbors as truth. The S1, the I of the master. Now, anytime Lacan, again, is talking about I's and one's, they oftentimes are interchangeable. The S1, as you've heard me riff before, is always at some level also an SI, something that puts the I in things like the ego ideal. The transcendental I, he says here, what are we dealing with? It is very precisely out of the I identical to itself that the S1 of the pure imperative is constituted it is very precisely in imperatives that the I is displayed, for they are always in the second person. Ha, ha, ha. That's a good one. That's a good one. The first person is always displayed in the second person structure of the imperative. And you best damn be, well be thinking about Kant in here and think about those imperatives. Act only in such a way that your conduct would become a universal law for humanity. There's an imperative. There's an imperative for you to chew on. The myth of the ideal I, Lacan continues at the top of 63, of the I that masters, of the I whereby at least something is identical to itself, namely the speaker, is very precisely what the university discourse is unable to eliminate from the place in which its truth is found. This is a pretty clear statement from Lacan that we should see the S1 in the position of truth less as that of the master, the capitalist, the agenda of the late capitalist. No, he's talking about something else here. He wants to say that this I, this S1 at the bottom, is that of the ideal I, that of the self-identical I. Check it out. From every academic statement, by any philosophy whatsoever, even by a philosophy that, strictly speaking, could be pointed to as being the most opposed to philosophy, namely, if it were philosophy, Lacan's discourse. So, you have an I that is most apparent in imperatives that emphasize the second person, and you've got another discourse that is threatened by this tradition that is referred to here in the third person <laughs> as Lacan's discourse. That's what he calls it. The icracy emerges irreducibly. Democracy, autocracy, icracy is what Lacan is messing with here at the top of 63. Now, already you see a very important thing, namely, Lacan is concerned with how the discourse of Lacanian psychoanalysis, read the discourse of the analyst, can get caught up, hoovered up into this university discourse with all of its emphasis on the ideal I, on the I that masters, the self-identical I. The danger here is profound, right? Because the wager of psychoanalysis is that there's no such thing as an identical I, because there's always something in me that resists consciousness, namely the unconscious. 
It's where I don't think I'm thinking that I'm having all of my most profound thoughts. Lacan's been riffing on this shit against Descartes since the mid-1950s. We've been over it multiple times, but it's here again in a slightly different context. Lacan is now very concerned with his understanding of the university discourse, that his own discourse, Lacan's discourse, the discourse of analysis, is going to get suckered into the discourse of the university. Don't forget how he puts this in Seminar 20. The university is like a sham progression from the discourse of the analyst. Because if you just take the discourse of the analyst, as we'll see, and you give it a quarter turn clockwise, you see the S2 slipping from the position of truth and that of the analyst to that of agent and becoming that of the university. The analyst discourse, hear me now, is always just one turn of the screw away from that of the university. And when that happens, everything starts to go south for psychoanalysis, according to Lacan not least of which is its core concept, that of the unconscious. Why? Because the discourse of the university, like that of the master, is premised on a denial of this thing known as the unconscious. And what he's doing is explaining now how the university denies the unconscious by assuming that it can have a mastering eye, a transcendental eye, an eye that is self-identical, without remainder, in short, without the unconscious. And this, he says, also on page 63, is part of what philosophy is up to when it tries to save truth. He says it a couple times on page 63, this emphasis on saving truth. This is going to become important when Lacan shifts to a different thinker, the Marquis de Sade, who's not interested in saving truth, but in loving truth. And for Lacan, these are two very, very different things. But for now, the agenda of the philosopher who assumes a self-identical relation to him or herself with this transcendental I in the position of truth is kind of like a way of saving truth. We don't know quite what Lacan is up to here yet or whether it's going to continue, but it's worth calling your attention to here on page 63. Final word here on the discourse of the university. It's one I really want to emphasize. It's one you heard popping up in our series on Seminar 16 in response to comments that Lacan is making in Seminar 16. I want to be really clear about this struggle, this personal professional struggle that is starting to surface in Lacan's seminars. Lacan is attempting to ward off any identification between the discourse of the analyst and the discourse of the university, between psychoanalysis and professorships. This is occurring in the late 1960s. No coincidence here when you have a student labor movement that could have been more coherent, but nevertheless is popping at the same time and oftentimes against established institutions of knowledge, namely the university. Lacan is there at a university. He's speaking from behind a podium. He's got a lecture hall, but he ain't a professor. And he's trying to walk this line. What he's doing personally and professionally with these four discourses is he's taking the university and the master and he's putting them in one camp. 
And then what he wants to do is say that the psychoanalyst is aligned more with the students, more with the protesters, which as we're going to see, find basic expression in the discourse of the hysteric. The hysteric in the Western tradition is the model for the protester. Or let me be clear, the hysteric becomes a great articulation of how protest has unfolded, typically in the modern West. And what Lacan wants to say is, psychoanalysis has more in common with the hysterical protesters than it does with the masters and the university officials that serve as their mouthpieces. And yet, and yet, in Seminar 17 alone, we see Lacan slipping into the discourse of the university. It's one of the great questions here. What is Lacan when he steps up to the mic? What is Lacan as a teacher? We can have a sense of what he is as an analyst. There's the discourse of the analyst as he envisions it. But what is Lacan as a teacher? If he's not the discourse of the university and he clearly can't play the part of the analyst, is there a discourse that accurately captures what Lacan does or is trying to do when he steps up to the mic? I don't have an answer to this question. I don't know. But I do have an answer to the question of what happens when he slips. When he slips from this nebulous position that is neither university or analyst, it's right into the structure of the university. The very discourse that he's trying to ward off, but nevertheless lapsing into. Let me call your attention to some passages. In fact, the opening passage of Seminar 17, I alluded to it in a previous lecture, it's now time to take a look at this thing. It's this opening story on page 11, extending into page 12 that Lacan throws out here. Since, as you can see, it pleases me to leave certain details up in the air. That's the paragraph on page 11, chapter 1, the very start of Seminar 17. And I want you to listen to these stories, these excerpts that I'm going to read, and listen for the discourse of the university. Listen to Lacan occupying the position of knowledge, holder of knowledge, and addressing the lack of knowledge that results in barred subjects, alienated subjects. Remember that earlier description we had of how this discourse of the university unfolds. Notice how Lacan slips in to this role. It pleases me to leave certain details up in the air. I shall take immediate advantage of this to air a scruple that has stayed with me following the welcome that I gave a certain person because on reflection it was not very friendly, not that I wanted it that way, but in fact that was how it turned out. Already what you see is Lacan has knowledge of some event, of some thing, of certain details that he is withholding, and yet at the same time telling everybody that he has. This is how S2 sounds. I know a lot that I'm not sharing with you, and I just want you to know that. I know more than you about certain details, 
but I'm not going to tell you about those. Or at least I'm going to tell you you're going to have to wait and see. That's S2 playing out as this omniscient holder of knowledge relative to an audience or an addressee who lacks that knowledge. Notice how he's doing this. Opening anecdote here. One day, somebody who is perhaps here, presumably Lacan would know and they would know, assuming they could identify themselves at this point in his little description here, but nobody else in the audience would, and will no doubt make herself, not make herself known, accosted me in the street just as I was getting into a taxi. She pulled over her scooter and said to me, are you Dr. Lacan? Yes, I am. I said to her, why? Are you holding your seminar again? Yes, of course, soon. Where? And then no doubt I had my reasons for this, and I asked her to take my word for it. I answered, you'll see. That is the discourse of the university. Lacan has all the knowledge. Everybody is queued up and interested in what's going on, Please share your knowledge with us, Dr. Lacan. Where's the seminar going to be? Are you holding it? I don't think it's any coincidence here, I just want to add this, that Lacan is getting into the basic figure of commerce, a taxi. If you want to put this into those capitalist logics of consumption and production, you see him actually on the verge of joining with a figure of commerce here. Nevertheless, the point is around knowledge and this emphasis on you'll see. It's another way to read this is that the professor with all of their knowledge is constantly tempting, teasing, and luring the student body into a state of desirousness, into a state of curiosity, into a state of wonder atop their ignorance. Lacan has knowledge this person doesn't, and Lacan is using what knowledge he is concealing to trigger this individual, to get them hyped up, to get them excited. And now he's using that anecdote to do the very same thing to his audience in the opening lecture of Seminar 17. If you were in that audience, wouldn't you be wondering who this person is? Wouldn't you be curious to hear more about this anecdote? Lacan is assuming, yeah, hell yeah, you would. That's why he's doing what he's doing. He wants to pique the interest of his audience. The same way the university discourse attempts to pique the interest, the desirousness of the students. And then he says she hops on her scooter and took off with so much throttle that blah, 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 blah. You'll see. You'll see. <laughs> it's a classic move by the university. Now, we're reading on here. We're doing our best with what we've got so far on the discourse of the university. I want to show you another passage, though, where you see Lacan playing the same role and even using the same expression. It's on page 21. You can follow along if you got the book. If you don't, all good. You can just listen. It's at the very top of 21. I don't know how far I'll be able to go with what I want to point out to you today. Here he's at the end of a lecture. Crucial part. Since we mustn't delay if we want to go over the four discourses in question, 
So he keeps promising people, let's talk about these four discourses, these four discourses. What are the others called? I'll tell you straight away. Why not? Even if only so as to whet your appetite. That one, the second on the blackboard, is the hysterics discourse. It's not obvious straight away, but I will explain it to you. I, Dr. Lacan, keeper of the knowledge of the four discourses, in this case the hysterics discourse, will explain it to you later, and I'm offering this account now only to pique your interest, to whet your appetite. And then, the other two, Lacan continues, one is the analyst discourse, the other, no, definitely not, I won't tell you what it is. Saying it just like that today would create too many misunderstandings. You will see it's a discourse that is highly relevant today. You'll see as soon as the omniscient professor decides to share that part of their established, ensconced field of knowledge with you, dear students, dear audience. Here again, you see the discourse of the university serving to whet the appetite of an already barred and thus desirous subjectivity. Some of you have heard me riff on this before. I don't think I would want to hang out with Lacan. You know, there's always this fantasy in the Christian capitalist West that everybody wants to go back in time and hang out with all the great heroes and so forth. It's also true in intellectual culture. Everybody has this idea that they want to go back in time and hang out with the big brains of the world. I would not want to hang out with Lacan. This, he doesn't sound like a nice guy. I'd probably like attend his classes because that would be lit. But as far as someone you might want to hang out with and have a beer with, he sounds like a fucking asshole. Here's another question for you. Would you want dear Dr. Lacan to be your psychoanalyst? The same guy who would have his tailor come in and have him fitted for suits while you're in the middle of talking about your horrible childhood. The same guy who we've heard would oftentimes have his hairstylist come in, give him a little trim while you're talking through your daddy, mommy, XYZ. I'm not sure that I would want him as an analyst. I'm damn sure that I wouldn't want this man as a friend. But I like him as a thinker. And that's all he needs to be for me right now. Interestingly, what we have here is the ironic way in which he is illustrating the discourse of the university by simply lapsing into it himself. And if you don't think he's struggling with this, check out our series on Seminar 16. If you don't think he's struggling with this, read these passages on 12 and 21 and tell me those aren't the discourse of the university popping. And consider one more, one final passage before we conclude this riff on the university discourse. Remember, our goal here is not to say what's been said, but to discover some new things about these discourses, the discourse of the university in this case. It starts on page 40, and it extends through page 42. This is a wild little interlude that he throws out here. Someone has written a thesis, an academic thesis, on Lacanian psychoanalysis, he tells us at the bottom of page 40. 
This point arises then apropos of a thesis, a recent thesis, which, good God, was produced at the frontier of the French-speaking region, there where they struggle valiantly to maintain their rights. In Luvian, someone has written a thesis on what they have called, perhaps improperly, my work. And what you're going to see in this passage is that Lacan is highly resistant to any attempt at this stage in his career to articulate Lacanian psychoanalysis in terms of academic culture. In other words, he's very resistant to any attempt that would take the discourse of the analyst and trans-disfigure it into the discourse of the university. Notice this as you're listening to what I'm reading here from page 40 to 42. Let's not forget that this thesis is an academic thesis. And at the least, what emerges is that my work lends itself poorly to that. So the very same work that we heard Lacan really wondering about in terms of Lacan's work being translated into the discourse of the university, here he's saying, um, yeah, you know, we're threatened by this eye but ultimately psychoanalysis lends itself poorly to academic literatures. Indeed, this is why it's not unfavorable at the head of any such proposition by a university thesis to situate the extent of the contribution that what was already academic makes to serving as a vehicle of the said work. Here we're talking about Lacan's work. Still in inverted commas. And then he goes on to talk a little bit more. It seems on page 41, if I'm reading this right, that he also wrote the preface for this work. In this little preface I did for this thesis that is going to appear in Brussels, and it is obvious that a preface by me will lighten its wings, I am obliged to note this is its one useful purpose, that it is not the same thing to say that the unconscious is the condition of language, as it is to say that language is the condition of the unconscious. So what he's queuing up here is an error in this academic thesis, an inversion of one of his points. Language is the condition of the unconscious. That's what I say, Lacan continues. The way in which one translates it stems from reasons which, to be sure, could in their detail be altogether activated by a strictly academic motive. And this would certainly go a long way and will perhaps take you far enough for this year. From a strictly academic motive, I say, flows the fact that the person who translated me by virtue of having a background in the style, in the form of imposition of the university discourse, cannot do anything other, whether he believes he is commenting on me or not, than reverse my formula. So, in translating Lacan's thought into the university discourse, Lacan's pointing out a reversal of one of his formulas, one of his bumper stickers. Language, according to Lacan, is the condition of the unconscious. But apparently in this thesis, it is said instead that the unconscious is the condition of language. And Lacan's saying that because this person is operating in the field of academic culture in the university discourse, they can't help but invert or reverse this formula. That is, give it a significance that, it has to be said, is strictly contrary to the truth without even any homology at all with what I claim. 
the discourse of the university strays from the truth of analysis, the truth of psychoanalysis, theory and technique alike. Surely, the difficulty endemic to translating me into academic language will also blight anyone who, for whatever reason, tries their hand at it. A lot of people out there, you may be among them, have worked, struggled to translate Lacan, Lacanian psychoanalysis, into academic discourse into essays, into books that can be published. You know firsthand the challenge of doing that. Lacan is queuing it up as a structural dilemma. Part of the reason why it's so difficult to work Lacan into traditional discourses of the university is because Lacanian psychoanalysis is anchored in the discourse of the analyst, not the discourse of the university. So when you try to take Lacan's thought and plug it into academic texts, things start to misfire. Reversals occur. Mistakes occur. Yet another reason why I emphasize ignoring the secondary literature on Lacan and just reading what he says, reading the texts themselves. The primaries are not so challenging. You need a little bit of help, which is why we're here, which is why lectures on Lacan exist. But for the most part, you can sit down and read this stuff. I'm just here to help you find your way to some of these passages. The point here Lacan is making is that there's a structural barrier to bringing analytic theory and technique into university culture, into the discourse of the university. There's a distortion that happens here. Anyone who tries their hand at it is going to realize this. And in truth, the author of the thesis I am speaking about was motivated by the best of qualifications, that of an immense good will. This thesis, then, that is going to be published in Brussels, retains a value nonetheless. Its value as an example in itself, listen now, its value is also as an example because of what it promotes at the level of distortion. In some way, an obligatory one, an obligatory, obligatory necessary structural distortion of a translation into the university discourse of something that has its own laws. A necessary distortion occurs when you take psychoanalysis that has its own laws and try and translate it into the university discourse. Notice where Lacan goes from here. I have to unravel these laws, these laws of analysis. They are the ones that claim to give at least the conditions of a properly psychoanalytic discourse. Of course, this remains subject to the fact that, as I stressed last year, because I am stating this from high up here on a podium, there is, in effect, a risk of error, an element of refraction which means that in some respects it will fall under the influence of the university discourse. There is something here that stems from something fundamentally off balance. This little paragraph toward the bottom of 41 tells you everything you need to know about Lacan's personal professional dilemma at this stage in his career. He says, I would like to tell you about the specific laws that characterize the discourse of the analyst, psychoanalytic discourse. But the dilemma he says he's in is that he's doing so from high up here on a podium. In other words, 
in the context of the university, behind a podium. And for that very fact, he has a risk of error that he has to deal with. An element of refraction, which is a certain type of distortion, it's going to be refracted when the discourse of the analyst is presented in this fashion, which means that in some respects it will fall under the influence of the university discourse. So Lacan is here admitting that he cannot shake the university discourse when doing the work that he is doing as a teacher. He's going to be tempted and lured into this sham progress that he refers to in Seminar 20 as sham progress from the analyst to that of the university. Something here, he says, is fundamentally off balance. To be sure, in no way am I identifying with a certain position. I assure you that whenever I come here to speak, it is certainly not to speak about just anything, nor is it a question of, what am I going to tell them this time? I have no role to play in this respect. In the sense in which the function of anyone who teaches has to do with a role. And then he goes on to talk about this role with a place to occupy, which is undeniably a place that has a certain prestige. So he's acknowledging the prestige that the petite bourgeoisie of a professor would have and enjoy from up there on that podium. It's not this that I'm asking of you, but rather something that is a kind of putting into order imposed on me by the fact that I have to submit this unraveling to this trial. The lecture hall for Lacan is a place in which to unravel the laws of the analytic discourse and to put them on trial. I, like anyone, would escape this putting into order if, before the sea of ears among which there is perhaps the odd critical pair, I didn't have to give some account with this fearful possibility of the path my actions are following with respect to the fact that there exists a psychoanalyst. It's a terrific phrase right there. That is my situation, he says. The status of this situation as such has so far not been settled in any appropriate way unless by imitation. This is an open-ended question at this point in Lacan's career. What is the discourse of Lacan when he steps up to that mic. Some people want to read it as a more hysteric discourse. I'm not sure I buy that. But it works. It works better than any of the other four, I think. Nevertheless, you can see where he's tempted, what he struggles to ward off, namely the discourse of the university. You can also see in these passages why he struggles to ward it off. Because the discourse of the university can't help when it translates Lacanian theory and technique into academic prose, it can't help but distort that shit, invert certain theses. In other words, get it wrong. But here's the thing. Lacan doesn't think that psychoanalysts in his audience are doing any better with it. Check this out. In the present case, this results in timid selection practices, in a certain identification with a figure, in a form of conduct, indeed in a human type whose form nothing seems to render obligatory, or again in a ritual, indeed in some other measure that at a better time, a former time, I compared to that of a driving school, without moreover provoking any protest from anyone. 
He's like, yeah, y'all don't want me to do this in the spirit of the university discourse. Nevertheless, what you're effectively tolerating and what you're asking for is a kind of driving school. You want learning to be an analyst to be like learning to drive a car. There was even someone among my students, he says, very close at the time, who remarked to me that this was, in reality, what was desired by everyone who was starting an analytic career, to receive one's driving license, as in a driving school, according to paths that were mapped out well in advance and that include the same type of examination. So the analysts there want this to be like driving school. And not just because they want it to be clear and easily accessible and ultimately like being something that tells them what to do. What they seem to want, he says, are also all of the paths of analytic technique to be mapped out well in advance so that they can study the paths, know them well, and pass their exam, get their license, and start being an analyst. Part of the reason why we've taken the S1, the S2, the A, and the BARD subject and tried to widen the conceptual gyre of each term, and part of the reason why I've insisted that when these terms are plugged into different discourses, they function differently, and part of the reason why I've invited you to consider all 24 different discourses that you could mutate Lacan's original discourses into. Part of the reason why I'm doing all this is because all too often the interest that folks have in the four discourses is that of like a recipe, a cookie cutter approach to understanding how, I don't know, the university works, how the hysteric works. Lacan doesn't mean his mathemes or these discourses to function like that. They are like rules of thumb, if you can pardon that really horrendous expression, that proves Lacan's point, not just that language is the structuring agent of the unconscious, but also that every language also has an unconscious of its own. Look up rule of thumb and you'll see what I mean. There's always an unconscious element to every discourse, to every language. Final word, then we're out. It is certainly notable, Lacan ends on page 42. I mean, worth noting, that after 10 years, I have arrived all the same at spelling out a way that is the one I call the discourse of the position of the psychoanalyst. Let's say it's hypothetical discourse, since this is also what is being put to you this year for your examination. Namely, what is the structure of this discourse? Lacan is in a bind here in Seminar 17. He needs to play the part of the university to some extent if he's going to get the discourse of the analyst out. But he has to be careful of all the different trappings that come with the discourse of the university. Not least of which is the tendency to transform the man behind the podium into an omniscient descendant of the philosopher's god, which in analysis is a big no-no. It's the subject supposed to no-no that is the problem here. Lacan doesn't want to play that part, 
but he realizes he has to do some work as an instructor, as a teacher, and yet he needs to do it in such a way that doesn't reduce the transmission of analytic theory and technique to that of a driving school, where exams are issued and all the roadmaps are laid out in advance for all these aspiring analysts. This is right at the start of Seminar 17. We're still, the passages we were just reading in the early 40s. We're going to see if he can make good on this. We've got two more discourses to cover, the hysteric and, by God, this analyst discourse. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.